Chapter thirty five of I, Mary MacLean by Mary MacLean. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter thirty five Lot's Wife. Tomorrow. Today in the afternoon, I briskly manicured my fingernails, sitting by my gold and blue window, and I mused upon Lot's wife. So many persons and incidents and events and adventures and episodes there are to muse upon in this mixed world, dating from when it began till now. There's something to charm any mood. Let me leave the doors of my mind open, and anything at all may float in like an errant butterfly on a summer's day. It is an entertaining world, by and large, a limitless vaudeville. Lot's wife is to me a fantasy from the antique, a bit of archaic frivol to beguile me. When I first heard of her from an acrid aunt of caustic humour, who told me the tale tersely in explanation of a biblical print, I was seven years old. From that day to this, my meditative thoughts have from time to time flitted backward to dwell interestedly upon Lot's wife. Later, when I went to an Episcopal Sunday school, I was pleased to find this adjuration in according to St. Luke. Remember Lot's wife. There seemed no special meaning attached to it. It seemed like, remember Lot's wife in any way you like, as it might be with a card on her birthday, a useless gift at Christmas, in your prayers, or in retributive patriotism, like, remember the Alamo, remember the main but i remember her because i like her there's no name given for lot's wife in the brief biblical narrative so i long ago named her bella as expressive of the temperament and character that have grown around her image in my thoughts poor bella i ruminated as i tinted and polished my nails her life in sodom was not entirely satisfying to her sodom was a town completely given over to pleasure of the physical and outward sorts the dwellers lived in and for their physical senses alone, and Bella had it in her to care for the foods of the spirit. Not that she longed for them, she was not so conscious of herself, but she had it in her to care for them had they been given to her. Still, Sodom and its ways were the best she knew, and she had known them all her life. The roots of her temperament had shot down into the Sodomesque substrata. She fondly loved the place. Sodom was a prototype for Babylon or Pompeii, worshipping the hotness of the sun in moralless plaisance, with fates and drinkings of wine from gold and silver cups, and bathings in warm-scented marble-lined pools, and anointings with oils of olive and palm, and dwellings among flowers of thin bright petals, and birds of vivid plumage, and fountains of crystal and rainbow, and caterings to the sparkle and froth of human emotions, and browsing amid loves and lights a love. Can Bella be wondered at for growing fond of it all, having known nothing substantialer? And can she rightly be blamed for hating the thought of leaving it for dry sagebrush wilds in the mountains? She did hate and dread that thought with all her soul from the moment it was made known to her that Sodom for its sins was booked for destruction. She had perhaps a fortnight in which to dread it, and a fortnight if given over to dread is long enough to damage stronger spirits than hers. Bella was slender and svelte, with long, straight, soft, beautiful, silken, pale red hair and white-lidded eyes of greyish-green, 
She was thirty-eight, a young thirty-eight. There's an old thirty-eight which applies to greedy school teachers, gangrenous woman government clerks, fading hard-hearted stenographers, over-righteous woman doctors, to all whose virtue is ever indecently on guard. But there's a glory-tinted, sun-kissed young thirty-eight which applies to sensitive, high-strung, generously emotional women like Bella Lott. She had smooth hands with supple, tapering fingers, an irregular, expressive-lipped mouth like a pimpernel bloom, firm, slim feet, and the quivering, suggestive white knees of a wood-nymph. From any angle of view, can she be blamed for hating to take that equipment away from the city deluxe, which was its so proper setting, and hiding it in the sagebrush? Furthermore, Bella had a lover in Sodom. It is beyond a sane effort of the imagination that she could have loved that unpleasing old man, Lot. The best and worst that can be said of him is that he was a fit addition to the company of the old patriarchs, who were for the most part an exceeding craven crew. The martyrs, the sages, and especially the prophets had their splendours, but the lean old patriarchs, the sporting blood of all of them, in the sense of merest simplest courage, from Adam down, would hardly aggregate one drop. There are any number of reasons, as many as Bella had charms, to account for Lot's having married her. But what she could have seen in him to make her wish or even willing to be married to him is a deep mystery to me. It may have been his family. I believe Bella lacked family. She was just a person. And was he not nephew to Abraham? And even being niece-in-law to Abraham himself seems insufficient compensation for being Lot's wife. The Lots had two young daughters, one fifteen and one seventeen, it might be. I do not know their names. Call them Ethel and Agnes. But they were of a recalcitrant temper and absorbed in their own racy pastimes among the younger youth of Sodom, and they had no need of their mother. Besides, they took after their father. So Bella was fain to turn outward in search of nurturing matter whereon to feed her humanness. Had it been expected of her to play fair with the patriarch, she would have played fair. But it was not expected of her by anyone in Sodom far from it, and least of all by the patriarch. She was eight and thirty, and Lot, he was doubtless eight or nine hundred years old, after the surprising long-lived fashion of the period. So Bella found a lover ready and awaiting her. She would have found a lover in the circumstances even without caring to, but she quite cared to, I think. Everything points that way, and when one remembers that good old man, her husband, one cannot censure her, but only pity her. Be it as it may, she had one, one as real as anything could be in that town of sparkling froth. Of the lover's identity, little is known, as the historians say. My fancy, as I filed my fingernails, failed me on the point. Suffice it to state that ever and anon, as time passed in Sodom, the grey-green eyes of Bella were gazed into with fondness, affection, adoration and desire the white eyelids of bella had showers of light kisses bestowed on them soft falling as rose petals shaken loose in summer winds the tapering white hands of bella were caressed and caressing with the oddly intense tenderness of physical love the pale red hair of bella was ruffled and fluffed and disarrayed by the fingers of love 
The red pimpernel mouth of Bella was touched, bruised, clung to by the lips of love. The svelte whiteness and nymph knees of Bella glowed as she broached love's arms. And all went much merrier than marriage bells. In short, Bella paid herself with usury for the deadliness of being Lot's wife. And there we have the crux of Bella's dread of leaving Sodom and its tempered sweetness for the arid sagebrush hills and the respectively cold and hectic companionship of the good old patriarch and the recalcitrant daughters. It cannot be claimed for Bella that any white poetic fires gleamed across her soul, that any limning beauty shone palely from within her. The air of Sodom was not conducive to such like matters, and Bella was no finer than her breeding and generation. But she was gentle and wistful and kind of heart. She was lovely to look at and ingenuously lovable in her clinging affection and disarming naturalness. She was all one could want to imagine in the word charming. Came the night set for destruction, and the Lot family fled according to schedule. They fled away in the early damps of an autumn evening through the outer city gates, and along a rough road faintly lit by a dying moon. They had three separate reasons for fleeing. Lot fled because he was a patriarch and was given to doing craven Old Testamentish things of that sort. Bella fled because she was Lot's wife and obliged to act out the role, and Ethel and Agnes fled because they had true patriarchal blood in their veins and had therefore no marked inclination to remain in Sodom to be annihilated. Safety first was one of their watchwords. They fled in the van. Lot came after them, being less swift of foot. Bella lagged behind. She didn't want to go. Every way she looked at it, she didn't want to go. She hated that flight for a thousand reasons. The ghastly moon shed a terror on her with its dim rays. The ground was hard and rutted with frosty mud, and bruised her slender feet through her white buckskin sandals. She wore a loose ninon gown of white silk and linen, with a gold girdle around her narrow loins, and a gold clasp at the left shoulder. Binding her long hair so palely red in the moon was a white and gold fillet. In one hand she carried a gold and enamel link bracelet, a gift but that afternoon from the lover. Suddenly she stopped and cried to herself, I'm too lovely for this fate. I'm too lovely and beloved. The cruelty of God, I'll not go on. She thought of the gleams and colorings of Sodom. She quickly reckoned the cost and decided to pay it. She was a rare good sport and a quaint. She looked back at the doomed city blazing in brimstone. But the wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. As I put away my chamois skin buffer and glass paste jar, through my mind floated the pensive burden of a bygone French song. Oh, the poor, oh, the poor, oh, the poor dear girl. She must have made a beautiful statue, all in glistening salt. I wish I had a glistening little salty replica of it to set on my desk as so unusual, a so dainty conceit, Lot's wife. End of chapter 35